Hi everyone, long time no talk. I know it's been a while since we put up an episode of Your Polygamy. Mostly I do my podcasting at the Sunstone Mormon History Podcast these days. So if you've missed my voice and you can't go through hours and hours of back audio, check me out at the Sunstone Mormon History Podcast. But yes, I'm still here. I'm still alive, still putting out episodes for this podcast now and again. And today is one of those days. I have a long-awaited interview, and I want to thank Andrew Hamilton for helping set this up. Today, I'm interviewing Virginia Kearns on the history of Sally Kanosh, and I'm really excited to talk about her because Sally Kanosh is a woman that is sort of laced with mystery, folklore, and a lot of misinformation. Virginia Kearns spent years studying the source material on Sally and found out a lot more that dispels the myth of who Sally was. I've been wanting to talk about Sally on this podcast for a long time. She was allegedly one of the Native American plural wives of Brigham Young. At least that's how the story goes. I've heard her called a slave. I've heard her called a servant. I've heard her called a plural wife of Brigham Young. And no one actually really knows who she was or what relationship she had with the Young family. The typical story is that she's a Bannock woman, and when she's seven years old, she's kidnapped from her tribe and sold by Ute slavers to the Mormons. And then, of course, she's either a servant or a plural wife or a slave to the Brigham Young family. And later on, Brigham gives her to Chief Kanash, where she's married as a plural wife to this Ute chief, and she is killed in a fit of jealousy by a jealous plural wife. At least that's the story. Virginia Carnes breaks up and dispels a bunch of those myths, including the age of Sally, including her indigenous name, which has often been misattributed, including her tribe, her tribal connections. And so that's what this interview is about today, and I'm really excited for that. And for those who have been reaching out about the site, I know I haven't done a good job maintaining it. I take whatever, you know, most of our subscribers are still listening. We've got great downloads, but I'm not actively fundraising for the podcast. So anytime we do get donations, we put it towards the URL or the server fees. But I'm really looking into rehabilitating the whole site. It's going to take some time. It will get all of our episodes on iTunes. It's just as a single mom with a bunch of projects going on. I'm doing a bunch of really cool writing projects. I don't have time to maintain the site like I'd I'd want to. But 2022 is the year that I'm going to try to do that. So if you're interested, I really need some big contributions to help us do this. I'd like to hire a web designer who can help us. Right now, it's our wonderful volunteer, Adam Groves, who's doing this on his, mostly on his own free time and free energy. So yeah, if this site is important to you, you know, consider a contribution. And for those who haven't heard, I've been working on a bunch of different projects. I'm working on a biography of Juanita Brooks. Hopefully that'll be done within the year. And I was the consultant on Under the Banner of Heaven, the television series for Hulu that's coming out starring Andrew Garfield later this year. So that will be fun. And hopefully I can talk more about that soon. And I'm writing and researching Sunstone Mormon History podcast stuff. So that's mostly what I'm doing with my time. But I know this this site, this podcast is important to people and I'm committed to getting this content up and keeping it stable for you. We've got this and another episode coming out. So hopefully you are still fans of Year of Polygamy and thanks for sticking with us. And now let me get into my interview with Virginia Kearns. Do they miss me at home? Hi, Virginia. I'm so, so excited to talk to you. I've been a fan of this book and wanting to talk about this topic for a long time. Sally has been a, a curiosity of mine for a long time. And when I heard that a book was coming out, I'm not even joking. I... I watched over and over to see when it would come out. And then when it did, I was really, really pleased. So I'm just very happy that that you've agreed to do an interview. So thanks for coming today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Lindsay. And I appreciate your interest in the book. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I can't wait to dive into it. But first, tell us about who you are, what you do, and how you got interested in this, this story. Okay. Well, I'm a cultural anthropologist, and I spent most of my professional career as a faculty member at the College of William & Mary in Virginia. And when I left full-time teaching there in Virginia, I turned to full-time writing here in Utah. 
And it was a complicated mix of reasons that brought me here. I have a family connection. I have a very deep attachment to Western landscapes because I spent my early childhood years in California and Colorado. But I also have a deep interest in Great Basin anthropology, and that drew me here even before I began to live in Utah as a part-time resident about 15 years ago. I wrote two books about the anthropologist Julian Stewart, who is considered a founding figure in Great Basin Anthropology. He was well known as a theorist, and I did write one book about his theoretical ideas and his life and the connections. And then I also wrote a second book, a companion book, about his fieldwork as a cultural anthropologist in the Great Basin in the 1930s. And so it's um, a long time, those books took a long time, and I've had a long time interest in Stewart and through him in the anthropology of this region. And while I was working on the second book, near the end of the time when I was doing the research and writing, I happened to stumble across Sally, and I saw the photograph of her that is now on the cover of the book. I was very taken by that photograph. I could see that there was a very complicated cultural situation there. And so I mentioned her just in passing, and I made a few statements about her, a paragraph or two that I later learned were incorrect. And my main source was um, a very well-known scholar who had made these statements, but without really giving proper documentation. And for various reasons, I just went with what I read. And so the book appeared in print, but Sally stayed on my mind. And I decided that I wanted to actually document a little bit more about her specifically to look for evidence that she was a foster child of Brigham Young, which is what I had read and which I had said in print, and that she had she had joined the Brigham Young family as a, a very young child, which most people who, who said anything about her in print, and it was only in passing, agreed on that she was very, very young. Well, I found census data, which showed that she was about 19, not a little girl, when she entered the settler's world. And as I followed that census data over the years, I found that she was consistently identified as a servant, as Indian, not white as the family members were identified. Those were categories that the census used at the time. And that the surname Young was never shown beside her name. But what I found especially startling was her age because it meant that she had entered a very different culture um, after she had grown up in another in a sharply different world. And it was clear that Sally had had to work very hard to assimilate. Absolutely. And I, and I want to talk about this, uh, this period of Mormon history. I come to it from a Mormon perspective, which I think you're unique in. That's not what your primary interest was, was Mormonism. It was more the Great Basin history. I uh, have been interested in this time period for a long time. And Sally is... Uh, her story is often used to, sh you know, to tell the stories of other people, to show that Brigham Young purchased Indian children or trafficked Indian slaves or all of these kinds of things. And, and that's what I found really helpful about your book is, first of all, you sort of clear up those questions and misconceptions. Was she a slave, indentured servant? Was she a daughter? Was she a wife? Where did she fit? And I really was taken aback by how old she was, because you're right that there are conflicting reports. And the general story is she was purchased as a child. And like you said, 19 is not a child. She has a whole life and memories and experiences growing up within her own tribal community. And then this, this trauma of being kidnapped, tortured, trafficked, and purchased by white settlers who are the enemy sometimes to her own people. It's it's such a fascinating story. Why don't we talk about the framework of the story too? Because that's something I found unique. I'm I'm used to reading mostly documentary history. It's sort of the the holy grail for for Mormon studies who have had such a complicated interaction and relationship with history in general. You combine documentary history, but also this anthropological lens, and I found that really really fascinating. So can we talk about why you took that approach, why it was needed, and why uh, sort of the limitations of documentary history in telling Sally's story? Yes. Well, first of all, because I'm trained in anthropology and because Sally's life story uh, really centers on intercultural encounters, 
uh, the concept of culture has to be central to the book's framework. And another feature of the book's framework, which comes from anthropology, and I think also distinguishes that from most of the historical accounts that I've read, is that I include insider and outsider points of view in telling the story. And I could get into the jargon and the history of this, but I'll just skip that here and just use the terms insider and outsider perspectives or points of view. And in the book, there are two main insider points of view. One is Sally's as an indigenous woman, and it's a perspective that she got from growing up as she did among Havanyuts. And the other insider point of view, which I try to express, is the settler's point of view. The outsider point of view comes from some sources like uh, Richard Burton, who was a famous Victorian traveler and writer, and who left a very valuable account of Salt Lake City in its early years. And it's definitely the outsider perspective that um, you read when you read his book. He was here for not even a month, I think, but he saw a lot and wrote about what he saw. And there's also the outsider perspective of me as an anthropologist and narrator. And I would say a narrator who has the benefit of knowing something about these various points of view, insider and outsider. Um, and not only am I an outsider to Utah in terms of where I come from, and I have been here for quite a few years now, but anthropologists have sometimes been called professional strangers because we are so often outsiders among the people we're drawn to and the people we want to learn from. So I will say, as an outsider, I had the benefit, um, I'll repeat this, of knowing something about these various points of view, Sally's, the settlers, viewpoints of Richard Burton and other people. And there are other concepts that I use from anthropology as well. And I think, again, these do distinguish the book from a strictly historical work. But the evidence I cite is definitely a blend. Some of it comes from ethnographic sources, especially the ethnographic and linguistic records of John Wesley Powell, who uh, recorded much about uh, the Ute language and Ute people in the 1870s, with the assistance of a young Ute man named Richard Comas, and then documentary sources, uh, written material recorded by Utah settlers and government officials and others, letters, uh, journal entries, all sorts of things. It is a, a blend in terms of evidence, but um, the framework is definitely that of an anthropologist because I think that's really what is required to try to understand Sally's life story because it was it's a story that takes her from one cultural setting into another. Yeah, and let me ask you a question about that because when I was listening to this and having a background with sort of the culture that she was brought into, understanding that pretty well, you fill in a lot of gaps. For example, you you sort of illustrate how how different Sally would have seen things that I take for granted because they're so so much a part of the cultural fabric that I was raised with. But this idea of Sally viewing how religious rituals for the first time, you know, Mormon religious rituals or white colonists dress or behavior in, in ways that I, I think one at uh, one point you talk about her bark skirt versus wearing cotton, you know, yes. and just this idea that that we have that cotton is a more sophisticated fabric, and it's easier to wear. But that wasn't necessarily true for Sally's experience. And so you kind of illustrate that. And I thought that that's one of the valuable things about your your book. But my question is, was it hard to because you're only using I mean, were you only using sources from white explorers, uh colonists who were recording it because that's that's the documentary evidence that we have? Or did you find other parts of the culture to pull from oral histories? Did you talk with the Ute tribes? How how did you piece that together? I, d I depended on written sources for the most part, or almost entirely, and also um, personal observations of places, certainly. But for that part of it, I was using written records, and some of them come from anthropologists such as Ann Smith and Omer Stewart, who worked with Ute elders in the 1930s and recorded a great deal about what they remembered of life, the way of life at the time of contact or right before contact. So I had what we call informants in anthropology, but at a remove, they were the people who Ann Smith and Omer Stewart talked to and who spoke about things like the way of dressing and how hunting and gathering were conducted and, and so on. 
Yeah, that that's helpful and fascinating. So why don't we give the listeners sort of a brief overview of who Sally was, sort of the arc of her life, because it, it might seem strange that we have her as a subject for the podcast year of polygamy, but she actually fits in. She has a lot of interactions with polygamists. Why don't you just tell us who Sally was? Okay. Well, the title of the book is Sally in Three Worlds, so that's probably the best way to look at her life. We have the indigenous world at a point of minimal contact with people from the outside, from complex society or civilization, and that's the world that she grew up in. There's the world of the settlers who entered what's now Utah from the eastern United States beginning in 1847, and then there's the world of indigenous people after 30 years of settlement, and that's where she went to live in the late 1870s. So I'll start with the first world, her uh, life up to the age of 19. And this is pieced together because Sally never learned to read and write. She never wrote down an account of her life. She did not write letters for herself. Nobody seemed to think she was interesting enough at the time to uh, record her life story. So this is pieced together from, as I said, records of John Wesley Powell and the work especially of Anne Smith and Omer Stewart, the two anthropologists who worked in Utah with Ute elders in the 1930s. According to Eliza Snow, a plural wife of Brigham Young and, of course, very well-known writer and poet, Sally said she was Pavant Ute. Uh, later, she was identified sometimes as Bannock, Shoshone, Paiute, but that's what she told Eliza Snow, that she was Pavant Ute. So she grew up speaking Ute, and she lived a hunting and gathering way of life that seems to have been centered on the place that's now called Beaver Valley in Utah. And that was that was something that Brigham Young specified when he gave some sworn court testimony in the early 1850s. She spoke later about her mother, father, and sisters. She, not that she said much about them that was recorded, but we know that she had a mother, father, and sisters. She grew up surrounded by kin because she lived in a band which is based on kinship, it's based on family ties. And she had a very detailed knowledge of the land of plants and animals that her people depended on because by that the time that she came to Salt Lake Valley, she was nineteen years old. She was a young woman and so she knew how to do women's work in her people's world. She told Eliza that her father had died and her mother had remarried and she said that her stepfather had sold her, or at least that's the word that Eliza uses. But what does that mean? Uh, she was of marriageable age. Um, it could mean that her stepfather accepted something as part of a marriage exchange, but Sally refused to enter the marriage. It could mean he willingly or unwillingly did take something for her from someone who meant to sell her as a slave. It's, it's unclear exactly what happened. Um, according to Brigham Young, in the same court testimony in the early 1850s, it was a man called Baptiste who was the captor and who sold her. So that's that's the first part of her life, living in the area around uh, Beaver, Beaver Valley, and living a hunting and gathering way of life, and living in a family group. So then that brings us to the second world that Sally inhabited, and that was the world of the settlers. In December 1847, her captor sold her to a young man named Charlie, and he was, this is complicated, he was the son-in-law of Brigham Young because he had married Brigham Young's daughter, but he was also the brother-in-law of Brigham Young because his sister was one of Brigham Young's plural wives, in fact, his second plural wife. So Charlie gave a gun in trade for Sally, and it was always said that he had done this to save her life. In other words, he wasn't trying to acquire a slave, although she was being sold as a slave. So he took her to the fort, which at that time was home to many people, possibly more that she should have ever seen in one place in her life. And a few days later, he this is the language that was used, he gave her to his sister Clara. He gave her, and it was Clara who, and this is a quote again, commonly used, Clara who taught her to work. So I want to say here, a captive of Indians who was Euro-American would have been returned to her family. That's That's what happened. And there are many stories of People like Cynthia Parker taken captive by the Comanche and the long search for her, and she was later returned to her family. And this would have been possible with Sally, but it wasn't done. In other words, it's clear that Sally knew where she was from and how to get back there because of 
the magnificent Utah mountains. She, she um, could have directed someone to take her back home, but that effort wasn't made. And instead, what was called a civilizing effort began, and it was directed toward transforming. And again, this is not my language I'm quoting. Um, it was directed toward transforming a so-called savage or a so-called wild woman. And this is co- very common discourse of the time. It's not unique to the Utah settlers. It was the language of most Americans at the time. So Sally resisted working for some time. She clearly thought she was a captive of the settlers and um, that she was a slave and she did not want to work for them. She lived in a room at the fort with with Eliza Snow and with Clara, the sister of Charlie, who had acquired her. And from that vantage point, she observed the strange world around her, and she began slowly to learn English. I want to point out there were Native people living in the valley, but she doesn't seem to have had contact with them. They did come to the fort, but she does not seem to have had contact with them, or if she did, it was not recorded. And unlike many Indian women who, when they were taken captive, ran away, she didn't run away. Again, this is something that might have One of several explanations. Part of it may have been a fear of recapture. There is some evidence, rather oblique, but some evidence that she may have been, um, she may have thought someone was trying to recapture her at some point early in her years with the settlers. But she held out hope that her mother and sisters would come take her away back home with them. And partly this was based on an interaction she had with another plural wife, Zina who could speak in tongues. And we can talk about that later if you're interested. But she thought that Zina said something that suggested that her mother and sisters were going to come for her and take take her back with them. Um, but I think eventually she learned that they died. She did have ways to find out about them. And the epidemics of measles and cholera and the other so-called diseases of civilization, they were not here before settlers came. They were um, diseases of civilization, so-called, had caused very devastating losses among Native people. So a few years passed, and Brigham Young's wives moved from the Ford into different housing, and Sally went along. And then in late 1855, this is eight years into her life with the settlers, they moved to the Lion House. By then, Sally had stopped resisting working. She had learned to work. She was identified as a servant. And at the Lion House, she worked in the kitchen and eventually became a very skilled cook. By that time, about 50 people lived in the Lion House. It was a kind of changing cast of characters. Plural wives sometimes left to live in other houses that Brigham Young brought for them. Other plural wives had children. But at the high point, there were about 50 people at the Lion House, uh, the plural wives and their children. And then Brigham Young was living next door at the Beehive House. And she lived with uh, Clara and her children in a suite on the first floor of the Lion House and helped Clara with the children and then spent daytime working downstairs in the kitchen preparing meals for this very large family. And Clara, especially Clara and her children, I think it's clear, became her family, uh, her immediate family, in, in that she adopted them. The Lion House really became her, her home. Clara and her children became her immediate family. Others at the Lion House became kind of an extended family. And, and so Sally worked hard and lived in peace for about 15 or 16 years. But then Clara moved to a cottage that Brigham Young had bought for her. The children were nearly grown by that time. Clara no longer needed her help. And so Sally was transferred to the Beehive House to assist in the kitchen there. And she moved quite unhappily, it seems. Clara's sister, Lucy, who was a plural wife of Brigham Young, supervised the kitchen, so at least that part was familiar. But Sally was living with young women who were mostly immigrants who would briefly live at the Beehive House, assist in the kitchen. And there were uh, I think that it was very disconcerting to her to no longer have a family group to live with, but to be living with servants. And she was also unhappy, I think, because she was cooking for the men who worked on the estate. There was, at that time, the Lion House and the Beehive House were surrounded by very tall walls. And within those walls was this whole world of gardens and orchards and workshops. And there was quite a staff, large staff of men who worked there taking care of the gardens and the orchard and working in the workshops. And part of their pay was to have their meals at the Beehive House. And so Sally was helping to prepare their meals. But this was 
a very unwelcome change for her because her pleasure had been in preparing and sharing food, especially for children. And this, again, is a product of her upbringing. Uh, there's something considered very good and very generous and as things should be to prepare and share food with other people uh, who are kin and, and most particularly with children. First of all, it's it's worth reading just to clear up misconceptions about Sally. Like you said, we ta- already talked about the age, but also this idea that she was unhappy when she was taken in, that that was surprising to me because I think the narrative and the understanding, especially the way that I grew up and the culture I come from was it was always doing, you know, these folks a favor to purchase them from from people like this horrible slave, slave trafficker like Batiste, you know, and yet Sally seemed unhappy there and reluctant to work. You mentioned that a few times in the book that uh, she didn't. It took her a long time to assimilate to the work. Do you want to talk more about that and and her unhappiness and maybe the shock that she would have experienced? Well, yes, it was a shocking experience. If she had been a young child, I'm sure it also would have been a shocking experience. But children are perhaps better at at learning language, a new language usually, and learning other cultural ways. I'll, I'll go back to Cynthia Parker, who I mentioned earlier. She was taken captive by Comanches in Texas in the 1830s. She was probably about eight years old. And so she appears to have learned Comanche very quickly. She became Comanche. She became thoroughly Comanche. And when she was returned to her uh, original family many years later, she was in her 30s by then, she was extraordinarily unhappy because she had very quickly assimilated. And it's not to say that there wasn't something shocking about her capture and being carried away, and she probably saw that members of her family had been killed. So all of that would have been shocking and traumatic. But she was young. And Sally, in contrast, as I said, was 19 years old. She was a thoroughly enculturated uh, person in her own culture of origin. And I think without warning, she was taken away. She said that, again, she did not say she was kidnapped. She said that her stepfather sold her, which is you know, it's a kind, it's an ambiguous word. I mean, it could have many different meanings, but I'm sure she had never thought that she would be sold by her own people because Baptiste was Ute. And while, while Utes did sometimes take Paiute children to sell, including to the settlers, they did not normally take their own people. So I think that would have been incredibly shocking to her. So she had quite an adjustment. And she knew what slavery was. It's very clear that she thought she was a slave. She thought in the beginning that they were holding her there. And so all of this was um, emotionally fraught. So as we get into her later life, I want to talk about the polygamy connection because, you know, Sally being talked about on Year of Polygamy, I wanted to talk about her for a long time. She grew up, lived from the time she was purchased around polygamous in the most famous polygamous household, Mormon polygamous household of all time, Brigham Young's household. And there was question of, was she a plural wife or daughter to Brigham Young? What role did she fulfill there? And then let's talk about her later life too, because I was always under the understanding that she was given as a plural wife to Knosh, then later murdered by one of his plural wives in jealousy. But your book sort of challenges that. Do you want to talk about about her connection to polygamy. Yes. Um, so the first thing to say is this was very interesting to me when I realized it. Sally probably early on figured out that this important man, Brigham Young, who was not at the fort, by the way, when she first went there, he was away and was going to bring more settlers back. But she, she pretty quickly learned, I'm sure, that Eliza and Clara and Lucy were plural wives of Brigham Young. And this would not have come as a surprise to her because in her own cultural tradition of origin, chiefs could have more than one wife. And it was considered in that world to be especially good to marry sisters. So the fact that Clara and Lucy sisters were both married to the same man would not have been surprising at all. I think what would have surprised her is when she eventually figured out how many wives he had. But that would have meant Something else she had figured out by then, that this was a very important leader who had a lot of power. 
So that was her first um, experience with polygamy. And then, of course, when she moved to the Lion House, she was living with a very large and complicated polygamous family. Yeah, let's talk about her relationship with Brigham Young and about Kanash. I was interested in learning about Sally's life to see how stories about her emerged and changed over time. So the idea that Sally was a foster daughter of Brigham Young, I don't find evidence of that in print until the mid-20th century and the late 20th century, more particularly. Then in the 21st century, I found stories, or the suggestion anyway, that Sally was a plural wife of Brigham Young. And the the evidence that's been brought forward for that is a photograph of a woman sitting with Brigham Young, and she's wearing what appear to be Indian bracelets of twined leather, and she's wearing a settler's dress of that period. But her face, we can't see her face. And it's been suggested mostly on the basis of the bracelets, I guess, that this is Sally. I found a dress that looks very much like that dress in a later photograph of Zina, one of Brigham Young's plural wives. And Zina was the sister of Dimmock Huntington, who for a long time was uh, an interpreter, especially with Ute Indians, between settlers and Ute Indians. And he moved to Utah Valley quite early in 1849. And Zina went to visit him. And it's entirely possible that she acquired the bracelets while she was there, or that Dimmick gave her those bracelets. In any case, until more compelling evidence is brought forward that Sally was uh, a plural wife of Brigham Young, I, I don't think that she was. I think that's very, very slender evidence, but perhaps there's more. It just, like I say, another reason for my skepticism is that the story emerged in the 21st century. And one of Brigham Young's daughters, Susie Young Gates, wrote quite a lot about her family and her experiences of living at the Lion House and about her father, the wives. And she wrote for print. She also left unpublished manuscripts. There's an interesting contrast between some of the things she says in the manuscripts and some of the things she says in print. In the manuscript, she is quite frank about some things that other people at the time might have wanted to cover up, uh, stories of the family that perhaps were not so favorable. These were things, she, like I say, she did not mention in her book. But Sousa was a very honest person, I think. And I believe that if Sally had been a plural wife, that would have been brought up somewhere in those manuscripts. And in the material I examined, I didn't find anything about Sally except that she worked in the kitchen. One of the complicated things with polygamy in this period, especially when we're talking about someone as prominent as Brigham Young, is who gets assigned the, the status of plural wife can be changed later on. It can be changed in the 20th century when people decide to seal Brigham Young posthumously to whoever they want, right? So there there could be an example of Mormons who who thought that Sally belonged with those blessings and covenants in Mormon parlance to be sealed to him and did the work later. Brigham Young could have even done it in his day. But I, th I think you're right. I think your book shows compelling evidence to place her in the right situation there. When I look at other Indian plural wives, there's a whole spectrum of how Mormon settlers saw their relationship to so-called Lamanites, right? How some actually did marry like Dudley Lovett in Southern Utah, who married a woman named Janet, who had been purchased as a child. And in my understanding, was fully assimilated by the time he married her. And she lived as an actual wife. She had children with Dudley Lovett. But that that was rare for a, a lot of folks. And so I, I think you're you're right on about Sally's relationship, but it, it is hard because Mormons do like to do change the records when it comes to ceilings and, and temple ordinances and things like that. So mm -hmm. uh, tell tell us about later on with Sally and her her marriage. Was she given to Kanash? Was she sealed to him? Was he a polygamist? What what was the situation there in your opinion? Kanash was a longtime ally of Brigham Young. 
they had a, a mutually beneficial relationship, a complicated one, but I'll just say it was mutually beneficial. And Kanash did have a history. He was the chief for a long time of his people. He did have a history of polygamy. He had married several women. Things were recorded about them and also about their deaths. So one of them, and I think here's where the confusion comes in about Sally and her death, and also was she a polygamous wife, was that in the 1860s, Kanash had married a young woman called Mary. And the settlers that he lived nearby liked Mary very much because she had grown up with a settler family and they saw her as very civilized. She knew how to make the foods that they made. She knew how to keep a good house. She knew how to live in a house that had furniture. She she knew a lot that made them feel very comfortable with her. And maybe they thought that she would have a civilizing effect on his people because that was the idea at the time that these so-called savages, again, this is not my, my language, or wild people would have to be civilized and would have to assimilate. So Mary joined Chief Kanash when he did have another wife, possibly two, but he had at least one other one who was said to have murdered Mary. Uh, that was reported in a local newspaper. And the wife who did that was told by Kanash that she was going to die for her act, and she did later die. So by the time Kanash married Sally, and he, and he had another wife after that, I believe, who the settlers called Anne, by the time he married Sally, it appears that he was a widower. He was not a polygamist at that point. And so far as I can tell, Sally was his only wife. There's no evidence of other wives. But later when the story was told about Sally, there was confusion between her, because she was a so-called civilized woman, highly assimilated, and Mary, the earlier wife. And that was certainly a very dramatic story about Mary, and it somehow got attached to Sally. I, I think that's phenomenal to be able to piece that together, too, because that it really does change sort of the the arc of her story and where it ends up. And and so I really appreciate that you looked into that so thoroughly. And, and again, for anyone listening, what's really great about this book is you fill in a lot of gaps and try to really understand how Sally would have experienced a lot of her interactions. And it's a good reminder for someone like me who has grown up Utah Mormon her whole life, that there are definitely other perspectives to it. One of the things I really, really liked and appreciated about what you talk about in the book and how you talk about it is you don't frame the story around Brigham Young. In fact, you call him the leader in, in the book. And I appreciated that because the whole premise of your polygamy, this podcast started out of this resentment that the whole history I was taught was framed around these prominent men. And it sort of erases or swallows up the narrative of all the people who were living this Mormon story, this, this polygamy story. So do you want to talk about your choices and how you framed and talked about Brigham Young? Yes, I would really like to do that uh, because it has to do with a number of different issues, including the way the book is written. So uh, the style of writing, first of all, I made a decision to write this book in what I call ethno-narrative style. I'll just say this is not a textbook. It's not written like a textbook. So it centers on named individuals. It centers on their cultural lives, their enculturated lives, the cultural settings that they live in and act in. And I think this kind of approach to writing can do a lot to reveal the complexity of individuals' lived experience, um, their cultural experience, and the complicated connections between their inner and outer lives. If we know something about the way they think about things culturally and the actions they took, it just enriches our understanding, I think, of who they were and why they did the things they did. Another reason I chose this uh, style is because it gives us a chance for emotional engagement with people who are far away from us in time. We're never going to meet them. It's uh, indeed fortunate that we have even one photograph of Sally, but this kind of writing, I think, does allow for emotional engagement. So, as I say, I didn't want to write this book in textbook style or, or what's called expository style, lots of abstractions, not much in the way of individual voices, using surnames for individuals, writing in passive voice, and that sort of thing. 
as a practical matter, this has to do with writing too, and it has to do with rules of academic writing. I couldn't use Brigham Young's name. I couldn't say Brigham Young again and again. I could say his name once, and then most publishers would ask me to just use Young after that. And that's very formal, and it shows how important he is to just call him by a surname. But the problem is, I really support equity in naming practices. I think that when one person, say Brigham Young, becomes Young, and there are a lot of other people in this book who shared that surname Young, we can't do the same thing with them, so we have to use just first names for them. I think that has a diminishing effect. You know, they don't have the dignity of the surname. Only one important man has that. And there's also the fact that Sally had no surname until late in life after her marriage when she became known as Sally Kanash. But before that, she did not have a surname. She was not young. So it was kind of a dilemma for me. The most important thing, so I've talked about the writing and the rules of writing, academic writing, but there's another reason that's really the most important one, and that is this book is a decentered work. And it shifts attention from important and powerful people who are the subjects of many books to a marginalized indigenous woman. She worked tirelessly for the family, but occupied the shadows pretty much. And I found that when I used the name Brigham Young or Young on the same page with the name Sally, she just slid out of view. She was completely overshadowed. So in the end, I decided to use the name The Leader for Brigham Young because this is what Susie Young Gates called him in her book about him very often. She called him Brigham Young, but she also repeatedly used the term the leader. And of course, many people at the time in Utah called him that. So in the end, I thought that was given all the complications that that was the best choice. I actually appreciated it when I was reading it. And then I think I told you that I later on to refresh for the this interview, I listened to the audio version on Audible, which was a delight too. It, it was so great because it it didn't distract me. I have very strong opinions about Brigham Young. I have a lot of baggage attached to it. And it, it's, it was interesting to hear it told this way because having him called the leader, I was able to not focus on that story, not focus on my feelings and my relationship to him, but just how he fit into her story. So I, th- I thought it was very brilliantly done. And I appreciated that you did that. Let me just ask you a few more questions and then I'll let you go because you've shared so much wonderful stuff as it is. But another thing that you talk about, and I think you open this up in your introduction of the book and then you carry it on out throughout the whole thing, is you really challenge the narrative of what is civilized. I think a lot of the history that we have and the way that we talk about this period of time and about a lot of just indigeneity in general is this premise of civilization versus savage versus, you know, civilized, wild versus tame. And you you really challenge a lot of that in ways that don't just have to do with, you know, human beings. But one of the other things your book did for me that I think was pretty radical in my thinking was talk about the landscape and and the plants that were indigenous to the Uinta Basin and how Mormon colonization transformed that. And how this idea of coming and settling a place was to get rid of all the native plants and sort of replant, I don't know, civilized plants, if you will. So do you want to just talk about that concept for a minute? Because I, for me, that was a huge shift in my thinking, and I really appreciated that. Well, one of the main shifts that Sally had to make was moving from a life that was based on hunting and gathering and living in a kin-based society, a band structure, to living in civilization. And anthropologists today usually use the term complex society rather than civilization because uh, there are many different, uh, what can I call it, values, feelings attached to the word civilization and civilized. And complex society is a more uh, neutral kind of term. But in any case, it's just a kind of social and political formation, like uh, a band of hunter-gatherers is a certain kind of social and political formation. And complex society emerged several thousand years ago. It was um, based on the use of domesticated plants and animals. And so Sally was moving from one very different kind of world into another kind of world. And in the introduction, I um, suggest that the way that 
settlers at the time, and this was by no means unique to settlers here or settlers throughout the American West or even uh, settlers throughout America. This is uh, old, old language, I believe, in Western civilizations. There is a binary that treats wild and tame and wild and civilized as opposites. And I wanted to emphasize that this is a cultural construct. This is not a fact of nature. It's not universally shared among the people of the world. Many don't have any concept like wild or wilderness, for example. But it was probably a product of the way conflict society was set up and the dependence on the tame, the domesticated. So you could say this in the book, this wild, tame, or wild civilized binary is an insider perspective. It's the perspective of settlers, of people who live in civilization. And I just want to say here, because I think this is very important, that there are many reasons to question this binary and to not use this binary. And one is that it does treat, say, wild and tame as opposites, when in fact they differ by degree because tame or domesticated derives from the wild. This is not something that settlers at the time would have thought of. It's they were living at a time before Darwin, but we know that it is true of all plants and animals and so-called tamed land that it was originally uh, what we call wild. It was not under the control of people. It had not been transformed by human beings. And a second reason to be very uh, wary of this binary is that it functions as a kind of stacked deck. It lines up opposing attributes, and they're negative or they're positive, and all the negative ones go on the wild side and the positive ones go on the side of tame or of civilization. And so it you could say that by doing this, it justifies very rough treatment um, and even the destruction of wildlife and wild lands in the name of taming the land, as I think is documented in the book. So it justifies the assault on or the elimination of native ecosystems. And then there's another reason too, and that is that this binary, wild tame or wild civilized, is very inappropriately applied to people. But in the past, it was often applied to people. I found in reading about um, the early years of settlement in Utah that people used the word tame Indians. So did John Muir, for example, the famous, uh, one of the fathers of American environmentalism. He talked about tame Indians as well, just referring to Indians who had given up a lot of their um, original ways of, of life and were living a partly assimilated way of life. So I, I want to say it's very inappropriate to pl apply the word um, tame, uh, wild and tame, wild particularly, to people because there are wild animals. They are not under human control, but there are no wild people because during childhood, you could say, if you're speaking metaphorically, during childhood, we are made tame. Uh, we are enculturated by our families and communities of origin. Uh, we are shaped and transformed by that. And so there just simply aren't any wild people. But most seriously, claiming that some people are wild implies that they have more in common with wild animals than they do with other human beings, uh, particularly the people of civilization. So this is just a way of saying uh, indirectly that they're subhuman. Uh, they have, as I say, more in case, more in common with wild animals. And this is a very um, unpleasant thing to recall here, but there were places in the West where there weren't just hunts for wild animals that offered bounties. There were actually hunts for uh, American Indians and bounties were given. So I just want to emphasize that this binary has a lot of problems, and the evidence of anthropology shows clearly that all people of the world, past and present, are fully human. No exceptions. We're all fully human. But we can lose that realization when we start applying wild and tame, wild and civilized to people. That's what I appreciated so much about your book, because you really do push back on this idea that the culture that Sally was brought into when she was purchased by Mormons was. Uh, better. Uh, some things, you know, worked for the area better than maybe what she'd come up with, but some things didn't. And you're constantly sort of showing the, the differences. And it's, it's not really a question. Better is probably problematic because it's just different. It's not better or worse. 
some things were like like the clothing example. The cotton clothing was hot for the for the environment. It didn't work in the environment, and yet it was seen as more civilized by these these white settlers who had come in. And for my for my own sake, as someone who's grown up under these stories my whole life, this idea that the Mormons came and rescued all of these tribes who were struggling. The word we used is degraded. That's our narrative. We used it to justify how we changed, took, invaded, stole the land of the people that were already inhabiting the Great Basin to say we did them a favor. You know, we were we were helping them. And that was the Mormon narrative. And, and you push back on that in a way that I think is fair and without agenda. It just it just shows how how complex different societies were, how how really the people that had been living here for centuries before Mormon arrival lived in a harmonious way with the environment. And it wasn't it wasn't wild at all. It was very sophisticated in, in its partnership with the land. And I think I really appreciated that framework because I do think that a lot of harm has been done to dehumanize the the population even still in the ex-mormon community i just yesterday i was seeing a discussion on this idea of nephite and lamanite civilizations and and someone had said you know nephite civilizations in the book of mormon were very complex and eloquent and sophisticated and you know did did native people just dumb those down by the time that you know mormon settlers arrived and i thought that just shows an inherent bias that somehow we we look at civilization one way and the way that that native peoples especially like the utes or the paiutes for example were were living were so low and dumb and poor and wild and unsophisticated and it's opposite if anything the the struggles that the paiutes had specifically were in reaction to mormon arrival they were impacted when their plants and animals were were stolen and taken and used up by mormons so Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, what, what is something that you would like your readers to take away most from the book? If there's, if there's a story that you think that you were writing, what is it? I suppose if there's a, a big point, because I'm an anthropologist who's very interested in the American past, I would like readers to take away the idea that there are different ways to learn about the past and that each one of those ways can offer a different angle of vision. So learning about Sally's life, which was a life on the margins, can reveal aspects of that past that they're just not obvious if we center our attention on the people who are usually the focus of our memories, the rich, the famous, the powerful. Because I'd like readers to realize the people we focus on help shape what we see. And so Sally's life provides a lens that helps us see lesser known parts of the past and I think even though I did not really address this in the book, the book ends in pretty much in the late 1870s, although there is a chapter that deals with the stories that were told about her. But I think that her life sheds light on some current concerns that are very much rooted in the past. And you can see, you can see those roots by reading the book. I'm thinking here about problems of racial injustice, for example. I'm thinking about environmental problems that result from ecosystem destruction. And going back to the first thing I mentioned, problems of racial injustice, what you were saying, Lindsay, about how Utah settlers spoke of the indigenous people in Utah, it is not unique to Utah. You find that kind of discourse in writings of settlers throughout the American West, and you find it from the earliest period in American history, the settlers who came from England who thought that they should civilize and educate the Indians, that uh, there was something wanting in the way they lived. And we know that, in fact, these people throughout the United States had very sophisticated belief systems, very sophisticated understandings of the world that they lived in. And it was, as part of colonialism, important to crush those and deny those to not be aware of all of that knowledge and, and as I say, the sophistication. So, so that's one thing I would like readers to, to take away. I also want to say that Sally's life isn't just a vehicle for understanding the past. I think it's important also to see her as a complex human being who suffered some terrible losses 
but persevered, who had agency. She wasn't just an empty vessel that got filled. She had agency. She made decisions. She loved. She gave of herself. She made a life for herself. I think she was a truly remarkable person. And I hope that readers will see that about her life, too. I think you absolutely did that. Like you talked about, the book is not a textbook. It's beautifully written. It's it's deeply entertaining. I hate to use that word because it sounds so cheap for, for the what the book is. But it, it really is a beautiful book to read, not only to understand the time period, but this person. And I was really impressed with how much you were able to pull from so, so little uh, sources. I mean, you, you really did, like I said, fill in the gaps. So why don't you tell listeners where you can buy the book and um, how they can support your work and if you're working on any other new projects as well? Well, the book is available from the University of Utah Press. It's um, also available from bookstores, independent bookstores, and it can be ordered from Amazon. It is available in print form, also as an ebook, and also as an audiobook. So there are all those possibilities. And I am considering a related uh, companion book that would be kind of a, a prequel to this book about Sally, but I haven't really made a decision about that. So I'm still in that post-publication time when I'm considering options. I'd like to mention also about this book that there is a book trailer video. If listeners would like to see it and to hear some music, they can find it by searching um, Sally in Three Worlds YouTube and they'll find the uh, book trailer there. And the book trailer has some historic photographs from the Lion House. And the soundtrack is a song that Sally heard in the last year of her life. It's an old song called Do They Miss Me at Home? And the words were by a woman uh, who wrote the words when she was quite young. And it, the words were put to music and became very popular during the Civil War. And it was still being sung in Utah in the 1870s. Sally heard it, and it was a very meaningful song for her. I think anyone who reads the book, and maybe anyone who has listened to our conversation today, Lindsay, will understand why that song was so meaningful to Sally. Yeah, well, I'm going to go ahead and attach that and play that for people so they can hear it. But okay, again, thank you so much for coming on. for. Thank you for writing this book and for doing it so thoughtfully and in a way that that expands the conversation. For me, someone who's been reading this stuff now for 10 years, studying this time period, I really did. I learned so much and, and it really challenged some of my perspectives in, in a really great way. So I appreciate that. And I'm just such a fan of your work. So thanks again for coming on and having this conversation. Well, thank you for inviting me, Lindsay, and thank you for your very good questions today. Do they miss me at home? Do they miss me? T'would be an assurance most dear To know that this moment some loved one Was saying, I wish she were here to know that the group at the fireside were thinking of me as I roam. Oh yes, it would be joy beyond measure to know that they missed me at home. To know that they missed me at home. Twilight approaches the season that ever was sacred to song. Does someone repeat my name over and sigh that I tarry so long? And is there a chord in the music? that's missed when my voice is away 
and a chord in each heart that awakens. Regret at my wearisome stay. Regret at my wearisome stay. Do they place me in chair near the table when evening's home pleasures are nigh and candles are lit in the parlor and stars in the calm as your stars